Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Conservative Party of Canada leader Andrew Scheer is demanding a parliamentary emergency meeting over the Trudeau-SNC-Lavalin allegations. I had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Scheer earlier today. Here's what he said. The SNC-Lavalin prosecution question. Did Prime Minister Justin Trudeau or anyone in the PMO violate federal government ethics laws by pressuring the former Attorney General to intervene with federal prosecutors to halt prosecution of SNC-Lavalin in favor of remediation. Duff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch. He joined me on that. Two murderers convicted and their sentences. And a police killer in Toronto becomes eligible for parole in June. Those are three of the four issues I discussed with Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and former executive director of the Canadian Police Association. More incidents of wearing blackface are becoming public. I spoke with Ron Miller of Lynchburg, Virginia, African-American and Dean of the Helms School of Government at Liberty University. Globe and Mail story declaring anonymous sources have revealed to the newspaper that the PMO attempted to interfere with the duties of the former federal attorney general, Jody Wilson-Raybould, by pressuring her to intervene with the Public Prosecution Service of Canada and halt criminal prosecution of Montreal-based international engineering giant SNC-Lavalin in favor of some type of remediation. Now, we uh, also have from Canadian Press that, uh, and i just quote the story, Canada's former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould was involved in government decisions or discussions last fall about whether engineering firm SNC-Lavalin should be allowed to avoid criminal prosecution and the talks were perfectly legal, um, government officials have told Canadian Press. And part of their reasoning was that uh, bankruptcy of the company would affect potentially thousands of jobs. Prosecution could bankrupt the company, putting thousands of Canadians out of work, quoting Canadian Press. Joining us on the program is Conservative Party of Canada leader uh, Andrew Scheer, and Mr. Scheer is calling for an emergency committee meeting in uh, Parliament on this issue, and would like to see that maybe as early as as Monday. Mr. Scheer, thank you very much for the time. Uh, Your words, please, on where this issue stands now, what what developments developments may have taken place in the last 24 or so hours that really caught your attention as well. Well, the, the biggest issue here is that it seems like the Liberals are are going to try to avoid these emergency uh, justice meetings. Uh, the, the new Attorney General was saying today that he didn't believe they were necessary. Uh, our, our point on this is, uh, the, the, Justin Trudeau was asking us to take his word on this. And uh, this is the same Prime Minister who said there was nothing wrong with his illegal vacation, with the Mark Norman affair, or with uh, uh, contracts being handed out by fisheries ministers, which all turned out to be against the rules. So we believe that the the best way to deal with this is is to deal with these allegations is to have the people who are involved appear before committee and explain to Canadians in an open forum exactly what... And if they're unwilling to do that, then I think we can draw the conclusion that they're trying to hide something. What do you make of the uh, the Canadian press story that uh, government officials are now saying that, yeah, there were discussions and it was perfectly reasonable and perfectly legal because any prosecution might have resulted in bankruptcy and loss of thousands of jobs? Well, again, you know, it's, it's up to the government to, to make this case in full transparency. What, what, what it sounds like is happening is that there were, you know, the, 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 the ability for 
the director of public prosecutions to uh, come to these types of uh, deferred agreements uh, was introduced in, in a momnibus budget bill. It was not standalone justice legislation. Uh, then there seemed to be uh, intensive uh, efforts made to, to obtain a decision. And I, I guess the real issue here is the fact that it looks like at some point uh, the former Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould, determined that it was not in the best interest of our justice system uh, to direct an independent uh, director of public prosecutions. At some point along the way, she lost her job. So the, the, the idea here is that in order, to, in order to obtain a desired outcome in a criminal proceeding, uh, people or, or, or the prime minister or, or decision makers in the in senior levels of government started to put pressure on, uh, on the attorney general who has a unique and independent role. You want, uh, you want Jody Wilson-Raybould, her successor, the justice minister, David Lametti, Gerald Butts, the PM's principal secretary, and Katie Telford, the chief of staff, to testify at the committee meeting. Well, tell, tell us this, please. What do you think the chances are that you will get that committee that committee uh, hearing, g- given that the Liberals have a majority of members on the committee and just voted down? Well, uh, I, I am concerned that is the path that they're going to go down, and that's why we've, we've made this call so public, so that Canadians can see that. Uh, the, the, the new Attorney General, David Lametti, was, was quoted in media reports today uh, saying that he doesn't believe it's necessary. But all we really have to go on here is just the word of government ministers and, and, and prime minister who have been shown to have uh, misled Canadians in the past. You know, when, they, when they've denied that there was anything wrong on other issues, after investigations, after ethics commissioners inquiries, uh, we do find out that laws and rules were broken. So uh, you'll pardon me if I don't take uh, Justin Trudeau's word on this. Uh, and I think it's an important step to, to have the air cleared on this. We're dealing with very serious criminal allegations against SNC Lavalin. This is this is not just a, a breaking the odd rule here and there. There are there are allegations of, of corruption and bribery. There, there in the past there have been uh, illegal uh, political donation, uh, entire scheme set up to funnel uh, illegal funds into uh, political parties. Uh, these are very serious issues, and so to have this done in such a way uh, behind closed doors with with this type of pressure being exerted. On uh, on the former Auditor General, uh, Canadians are right to be very worried about this. We've seen what happens in other countries, most notably in the United States, when uh, when the, 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 the head of government doesn't like what the Attorney General is doing, and and, and then fires him or her. Uh, that's unsettling. You know, we, we we're just in the middle of telling the Chinese government that we have a an independent. Uh, judicial process with independent agencies acting in the best interest to serve justice and the rule of law. And so it's very, very important that we do everything out in the open in a very transparent way. And that certainly hasn't been the case up until this point. I don't know about you, but I find it curious and uh, I find it actually disturbing that the current Justice Minister, the current Attorney General, David Lametti, seems to be telling everyone, look, uh, further investigation here isn't necessary. Keep moving, folks. There's nothing to see. It's not up to him to make that decision. He should, no, uh, in my view, he, he should be he should be the one who would be arguing for total uh, transparency here. And the prime minister has the option, does he not, to uh, to to open the door for the former attorney general to candidly speak about what took place. Well, exactly. And you know, normally when we see 
uh, public figures or anybody really being accused of something that they know that they did not do, uh, often they demand an inquiry to show that, to prove it. You know, if, if I were the Prime Minister, uh, I would have uh, I would have proactively called for these types of hearings so that we could clear the air, so we could get uh, the information out. If, if, if you're so sure that nothing untowards happened, then he, you know, the, the Liberals should have called for this, uh, the, 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 this proceeding to get all the information out. And he touched upon a very important point, uh, right? The other thing we have in the story is not just the the sources in the Globe and Mail and the other media reports. We also have the silence of the former Attorney General. So the, Jody Wilson-Rabel had, could could put these allegations to rest very, very quickly uh, if she just confirmed and corroborated the Prime Minister's versions of a, a version of events. Uh, she has hit, she has claimed uh, that she can't because of uh, client attorney-client privilege. But you're absolutely right to point out, as other Prime Ministers have done, Stephen Harper, uh, Paul Martin, uh, they waive those privileges in the interest of having the truth come out. And I believe that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, should do the very same in this case. When you ask Mr. Trudeau questions, and you ask him pointed questions in question period, he answers by repeating verbatim over and over and over the same one or two sentences that may or may not have something to do or anything to do with the question that you asked. When you asked, when you pressed him on this issue, he just repeated his stock answer over and over and over. The Prime Minister truly believes this, then what he should do is just, again, open the door to the former Attorney General to back him up. Exactly. And we asked several questions uh, that had nothing to do with the Prime Minister's scripted response. And Justin Trudeau is very good with a script. You know, he's very good at, uh, at learning the 10 or 15 words and sticking to that and delivering them uh, often in a very convincing way. But we started to ask questions about, you know, whether or not people uh, in the Prime Minister's office took meetings with SNC-Lavalin. We know, thanks to the lobbyist registrar, that at least 14 meetings touched on the subjects of justice and law enforcement. Uh, now, SNC-Lavalin is a construction company, so you know, we wanted to, what were the nations, uh, the nature of those discussions? Were they related to the deferred prosecution agreements that they were seeking? Uh, when when you have the, the the prime minister spokesman of Justin Trudeau's new attorney general stick to the line that's unrelated to the question that we asked, uh, then it starts to look like they are battering down the, the hatches and and, and uh, just engaging in full defense mode. Uh, the truth is the best weapon if they believe that there's nothing wrong, if they truly believe that, that, that nothing untowards happened, they should be opening up the books, they should, be, they should be volunteering to come to committee to walk Canadians through what's been going on for the last few months. Well, it's in their best interest to do so, unless... Now, um, let me ask you one more question. What are you doing actively uh, to try to make sure that this parliamentary emergency committee meeting takes place? Is there, is there anything you can do? I know you have the support of the NDP, so... Let me come back to the question, how likely do you think it is you're going to be able to get this emergency meeting, and, and what are you doing to, 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 you know, not stack the deck, but create the environment for you to get that meeting? Right. Well, uh, thankfully, the, the, there are rules in the House of Commons that give the power to opposition parties to force meetings. So we know that there will at least be a meeting. That's when it gets uh, a little bit uh, difficult for the opposition to ensure that light is shone upon this, because the Liberals do have a majority on that committee. 
so they could simply vote uh, down our motion. So we've been calling for this very publicly. We're asking Canadians to get engaged, contact their Liberal Member of Parliament if they live in a Liberal-held riding. Uh, We will be turning up the pressure in the next few days so that uh, the public is very aware uh, because I believe this is a crucial moment in this in this on this early in the early days of the scandal developing. This is a crucial development. If the Liberals block this committee investigation, that that is a very very troubling sign, and and they have a choice to make here. They can work with the opposition parties to shine the light of transparency on this. Justin Trudeau himself said that sunlight was the best disinfectant when he started his term in office. He seems to have forgotten that, uh, but we're going to be reminding him of that. He can he can start to show uh, goodwill on this and and try to earn back some of the credibility that he's lost if he allows this to proceed. If he doesn't, it's a very very disturbing uh, situation. And I think we can all draw the conclusion that they're trying to hide something. Mr. Shear, thank you for the time. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Good talking to you. The Conservative Party leader Andrew Shear. David Butt joins us. On uh, the program, criminal lawyer in Toronto, former prosecutor, op-ed writer for the Globe and Mail. And uh, David, thank you so much for the time. And when the former attorney general argues she cannot speak about this because of lawyer-client privilege, is she missing an important option here? Uh, And I I spoke with Duff Conacher a couple of minutes ago, and his point was the government um, isn't the client if the government is giving directions. Well, the uh, government is uh, entitled and, and indeed routinely seeks legal advice when they're considering uh, any policy. And this, and this isn't a partisan issue at all. It's a, governments of all stripes need to consult with lawyers when they're designing policy, when they're implementing policy, when they're thinking about policy. So it's, it's not at all unusual uh, for the government to uh, seek legal advice. And in this situation, uh, as in many others, the attorney general is really the chief law officer. So in other words, the head lawyer uh, in in terms of advising the government. So it would not be unusual either that she would be the one uh, involved in in the giving of advice. Now, uh, when it comes to criminal prosecutions, there's an important nuance And that is that criminal prosecutions have to be seen as independent. So typically, there is very much a hands-off approach to the running of criminal prosecutions so that independent prosecutors who have no political role uh, are making the decisions. Now, the attorney general is both the head prosecutor and a member of cabinet, so The attorney general wears two hats, and it's crucial to keep those two hats distinct. There may be legitimate legal advice and development of policy. Uh, There may be legitimate participation in political strategizing at the cabinet table, but there cannot be political interference in prosecutions. Now, you were a prosecutor, and uh, is is it fairly routine for governments of any stripe, whether it's federal or provincial, to not clearly see the line that separates uh, interference from allowable discussion. Do governments routinely try to persuade or direct prosecutors when they shouldn't be doing so? Yeah, it's, it's a really important question, Roy, and I'm glad you've asked it. I had the, uh, the, the pleasure as a, in my 13 years as a prosecutor uh, in the province of Ontario of 
being a prosecutor when there were liberal, conservative, and NDP governments in power. And the approach was always the same from our perspective as prosecutors. The attorney general, as a uh, political actor, as a member of cabinet, certainly had the right to know what was going on, the right to be briefed. But every time an attorney general is briefed, uh, everybody in the room has to be fully aware that the attorney general needs to know everything about sensitive prosecutions, but all of the decisions about how to conduct those prosecutions have to be made independently. And frankly, in my experience, every new government coming in, of all political stripes, had to learn that lesson. There was a bit of an assumption that as politicians they could have a say and they could run the show, just like they can run the show when you're developing a policy with respect to highways or transportation or railways or or anything else like that, economic policy. But when it comes to actually running criminal prosecutions, it's hands-off. And in my experience, Every government of every political stripe had to learn some hard lessons that way. It's interesting that Michael Bryant, who was the Attorney General um, under Dalton McGuinty, said the other day, he's the Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, was on this program not long ago, and he said that if he'd had, uh, if someone had tried to direct him when he was AG, he would have been calling 911. Exactly right. The And, you know, he's a member of Cabinet, he's a political actor, but he is also the law officer of the Crown. And when those two conflict, the duty of the Attorney General is clear. It's the law officer of the Crown obligations to fair prosecutions that has to trump. Otherwise, we have politically run prosecutions, and we're no different than uh, some of the failed states we read about uh, around the world, where the head of government uh, tells uh, the army or the police to arrest and and prosecute people. Uh, We certainly don't want to go down that road, and so there has to be that bright line. Uh, Michael Bryan is absolutely right. Now, Canadians do want to hear from uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, and I think particularly after she said she could not speak because she couldn't comment because of solicitor-client privilege, well, the the Prime Minister can lift that that obstacle out of her way, can he not? That's correct. Uh, When when it comes to lawyer-client privilege, the lawyer cannot lift the privilege because it belongs to the client. It doesn't belong to the lawyer. Uh, when clients come to consult me, I tell them that they have the absolute right of secrecy, and I cannot lift that veil unless they're going to harm somebody, of course. But subject to that, I cannot lift that veil of privacy. However, they as the client can walk out of my office, and everything I said to them, they can publish in a newspaper or put on uh, a Twitter feed. It's totally their choice. So yes, the client does have a choice to make things public, and that's where this becomes a political issue. Uh, should the government do that? And of course, you've got different perspectives depending on uh, where your partisan affiliations lie on that question. Now, I keep going back to the fact that a major media organization had two reporters on this story, and those reporters received anonymous information. And there's been questions, and we've asked the question on this program recently and over the last couple of years, just how reliable anonymous sources are and whether or not they should be uh, significant contributors to a major story. But we have what we have. And so now this is out there, and the government chose to respond to this story and respond in several ways now. As, As a lawyer, as a former prosecutor, is there something about this story, Dave, that that really catches your attention, uh, that, that 
that I'm, I, I, I wouldn't get because I'm not in the legal profession. Is there something going on that really triggers your attention? Well, I'm, I'm always very concerned when they're, and, and again, I don't have any inside information. I don't know the reliability of the anonymous sources. I certainly wasn't in the PMO's office when any conversations were taking place. So, uh, but as an outsider looking in, uh, I am very concerned as a, as a legal professional. I'm very concerned uh, anytime there is even the appearance of political interference in prosecutions. That issue is something that is fundamental to any self-respecting democracy that the instruments of criminal justice are completely independent of any taint of political interference or even the appearance of any taint of political interference. So uh, regardless of where the truth lies here, and I certainly am not prepared to say one way or the other on, on what we have so far, the issue itself is extremely important to me as a lawyer. And it demands clarification. We've gotten to the point now where it cannot be allowed to just fester, and it's certainly not going to go away. Yeah, it's it's an important issue, uh, and and we we don't want, as I say, to have people lose faith in the justice system, and and think of it as just another branch of partisan politics. Because, mm-hmm. it, as you well know, Roy, you know, there's a, a large segment of the public are, are completely fed up with partisan shenanigans. Exactly, and. If, if we allow our justice system to appear to be tainted with that same brush, uh, we would be doing a great disservice. And I, and I will say this, right now, Canada enjoys a worldwide reputation for having a justice system that is free from this kind of taint. So we, we want to keep ourselves way ahead of the pack by avoiding any appearance of political interference in prosecutions. Let me ask you one more quick question. Uh, is there some point where a police investigation uh, gets underway? And we have a former judge, uh, I think a former judge in Saskatchewan, who's a, a professor or a dean, I'm not sure, at a, a university in British Columbia. I should have that information in front of me. But she has mused about police investigations. Yeah, uh, I, I don't see anything at this point, in terms of what's on the public record that, that prompts me to suggest that this is a criminal law issue, it's, it certainly appears to raise a very important issue about the independence of prosecutions. Whether there's any misconduct that rises to the level of criminal misbehavior, I think we're not quite, uh, quite there yet. Uh, but that's not to underestimate the importance of the issue. Just because it's not criminal at this stage doesn't mean it's not very, very important. Dave, thanks for the time. Always appreciate uh, you taking time for us. Always a pleasure, Roy. Thank you so much. David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, former prosecutor, and he's an op-ed writer for the Globe and Mail as well. The question is, really fundamentally, did the Prime Minister's office, did the Prime Minister encourage, uh, directly propose to the former Attorney General that she engage with federal prosecutors to stop um, criminal prosecution and decide on on some sort of remediation for SNC-Lavalin. This is not going away. This story is not going to go away for some time. Even if the former Attorney General speaks about what did or didn't happen. And she can do that. She says she's not allowed to because of uh, solicitor-client privilege. But Mr. Trudeau, as the prime minister, can waive that privilege, as Stephen Harper did, 
and uh, and grant the former attorney general the the freedom to explain to Canadians what in fact happened. And the longer they wait, the more questions will be raised. The longer they wait, the more doubt will creep into people's minds and with good reason. Duff Conacher, by the way, we'll, we'll be speaking with Andrew Shear at the top of the next hour. Mr. Shear is calling for an emergency parliamentary committee meeting over the Trudeau SNC Levin allegations. So Andrew Shear joins us at the top of the next hour on the Roy Green Show. Now uh, Duff Conacher is with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's an adjunct professor of law and political science at the University of Ottawa. I'll ask the studio to put Duff on for me, please. DemocracyWatch.ca has released a letter to Federal Conflict of Interest and Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion to delegate any investigation to a provincial ethics commissioner because Dion, and I find this to be a particularly interesting point, and I'd forgotten about it, Dion was chosen by the Trudeau cabinet without consultation with opposition parties as is required by the Parliament of Canada Act. Duff, thank you so much for the time, and uh, we have a bit of a goulash going on here, don't we? Yes, indeed. Very much so, and uh, and a big problem with actually being able to have a, an independent investigation of it by any federal body, because we don't really have independent watchdogs at the federal level. Let's talk about that first, so we can we can clarify the point that I I just actually took from your uh, your your release of yesterday that Mr. Dion was selected by the federal government by the federal cabinet, and the opposition parties were not involved at all. No, that's right. The selection committee were all people that served the Trudeau cabinet. And the Trudeau cabinet sent the one name, Mario Dion, to the opposition party leaders uh, and said, next week we're appointing this guy. What do you think? And that's not consultation. That's dictation. Mm -hmm. And that's all they gave them. They didn't send them a short list of names and say, you know, let's all choose the final person together because it's key for the ethics commissioner who enforces rules for all federal politicians, not just the cabinet, to be someone who's viewed as nonpartisan and not tainted at all in any way. Uh, they didn't do that. They just sent one name and said, here's a few days, and made it very clear they're going to appoint the guy anyway, no matter what the opposition parties had said in response. The NDP wrote back a letter and said, you're not consulting with us. We want to see the short list. We want to know who was on the selection committee. They had kept that secret as well through the whole process. And it all came out uh, afterwards that... Uh, the selection committee was made up of people who served the Trudeau cabinet. They didn't have any independent voices at the table. And, and uh, they actually lied. They said that they didn't have candidates. And they had to reopen the process back in, in July of 2017. But in fact, they had more than 50 people who had applied, some of whom were fully qualified. They just obviously didn't want them, because probably because they'd be real watchdogs. And Mario Dion, Dion has a... Uh, record as an unethical lapdog, and now he's the Federal Ethics Commissioner. And the way they did it, as you point out in the release from democracywatch.ca, was in violation of the Parliament of Canada Act. Yes, it requires consultation, and uh, we're currently challenging that in court, and also the fact that the Trudeau cabinet, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, was under investigation by the Office of the Ethics Commissioner, as were uh, as was Finance Minister Morneau at the time that they replaced the Ethics Commissioner. So that's like Donald Trump replacing the head of the FBI in the middle of the investigation into Donald Trump's actions. It's just as bad as that, and that's what the federal liberals did through a secretive process that was controlled by the cabinet. And, and they chose their own judge, essentially, the judge of whether they violate the 
the federal ethics law. And you can't choose your own judge. You're obviously in a biased position when you do that. Well, it also would make people ask, was there any specific intent here? No, exactly. And especially when you have um, Mario Dion used to be the integrity commissioner, which is the person that is supposed to protect whistleblowers. And he was found guilty by uh, a federal court uh, twice of violating whistleblower rights while he was the person who was supposed to be protecting whistleblowers. One of the very first things he did after being appointed as integrity commissioner by Prime Minister Harper, within a few weeks he contacted his friend who was clerk of the Privy Council and gave him a heads up about uh, uh, that someone had filed a whistleblowing complaint about stuff going on in the Privy Council. This is the guy who was supposed to investigate impartially and protect whistleblowers. And one of the very first things he did was tip off his friend that there was a complaint about the Privy Council office. Yeah, he's the exact person you need to investigate what's going on now. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why we've said you're biased and you're tainted and you shouldn't be ruling on anything to do with the Liberals or the opposition parties, frankly, because, again, he was handpicked by the Liberal Trudeau cabinet. He should delegate it to the provincial, a provincial ethics commissioner who has no ties to any federal uh, party and is viewed as independent. This has been done in the past. The Alberta ethics commissioner in a case knew one of the people in the situation that was going to be investigated, and so she referred it to the BC ethics commissioner. So it's not unprecedented, and it's the proper thing to do when you have the appearance of bias. Duff, when, uh, when the former attorney general says, as is reported on, uh, on Global News, uh, Wilson-Raybould says she can't comment on SNC-Lavalin case, citing solicitor-client privilege. And then, as Canadian press has reported today, Canada's former attorney general was involved in government discussions last fall about whether engineering firm SNC-Lavalin should be allowed to avoid criminal prosecution, and the talks were perfectly legal. Government officials have told Canadian press the officials said the government would have been remiss not to deliberate over the fate of the Quebec giant, given the prosecution could bankrupt the company, putting thousands of Canadians out of work. You're the law professor, but to me, that sounds worrisome right there. Yes, very much so. And doesn't it sound like Donald Trump, too? Well, it sounds like... His first statement is nothing happened, and then when it's confirmed something happened, he says, oh, but it was legal. He's he's done that repeatedly. It it sounds like political manipulation at its worst. And... and, um, they're trying to spin it now because they know in this age of transparency that it was going to come out that actually discussions did occur. So therefore, now they have to change the tack and say it was legal. Um, it's not legal. And lots of people confuse this, and it's not highlighted very much. But we actually have a systemic problem, I believe, in Canada, which is the Minister of Justice, a politician who sits at the cabinet table and oversees the whole justice issues and changes to laws that affect Uh, uh, justice and rights, um, is also, across the country, also the Attorney General, who is the government's lawyer, and is supposed to be acting totally independently of Cabinet. And we should really have, separate those two positions. It's a systemic problem across the country, Mm -hmm. and, and the Attorney General should be someone who is not a member of the Cabinet, but is just there providing advice. And when you're talking about prosecutions, though, and whether a particular company or individual should be prosecuted, it's not legal for anyone in the cabinet to be talking to the attorney general and saying you should do this or that with the prosecution. Or anybody in the PMO. 
anyone in the PMO, anybody, any cabinet staff person, any top government official? No, you can't be talking to the Attorney General about what's going to be done in, with a particular case. Because if we had that, that means that legal decisions about prosecutions are made based on politics, not based on the law. And you don't want that. That's, those are very bad countries that, uh, across the world that do that kind of thing, because it means the politicians are deciding whether people get charged and prosecuted and thrown in jail. That's called a police state, not a democracy. Uh, how do Trudeau's explanations, or his one explanation, how does it ring to you? Uh, well, he's been very careful uh, and just kept on saying over and over again, initially, no one directed her, no one directed her. Um, and he's probably maintaining that word because there is an issue as to whether this amounts to obstruction of justice uh, versus if someone just tried to influence her, it's a violation of the Conflict of Interest Act, Section 9, which says you can't use your position to try and influence someone to improperly further some, uh, someone else's or some businesses or organization's interests, let alone also you, you're not allowed to further your own interests or your family's interests. And so clearly, if this did happen, someone violated the Conflict of Interest Act because they did try to influence the Attorney General's decision to protect uh, SNC-Lavalin's interests, and of course that's improper because it was intervening in prosecution decisions. Uh, if they didn't actually direct her then that, if someone actually did that, they may get off on actually being charged with the crime of obstruction of justice. And I, I think that's why they're so careful to use that word, that no one directed her to mm -hmm. do anything. Yeah, that, that, that word has really stuck out yeah, with, with, with people the across the country. It's repeated, and really that wasn't, that wasn't the question he was asked. No, but when you're talking about a criminal charge, first of all, just to explain, the Attorney General can actually override this prosecution. That's why there were discussions, right? Because uh, the Attorney General actually does have the power to step in and say to the, the Public Prosecution Service, which was created in 2006 by the Harper government um, and was created to prevent political interference in prosecutions, uh, the uh, service is there, and, but the Attorney General can step in. If the Attorney General steps in, the Attorney General has to issue a public statement as to why they're intervening in a prosecution decision and essentially taking over control of it from the, the um, more independent but not fully independent public prosecution service. So it is legal to do that intervention, but it's not legal for anyone to be trying to influence the Attorney General in making that decision. And if you're talking about being charged with the crime, I think what they would say is, but it's legal for them to do it. Of course, we talked about it. We didn't direct the attorney general to do it. Therefore, it's not obstruction of justice. But that doesn't let them off the hook in terms of a violation of the Conflict of Interest Act, because all you have to be doing is attempting to influence the decision. And they've essentially admitted that that was done. You want uh, this investigation to be handled by a provincial ethics commissioner? Yes, because the... Uh, what are the chances? Well, uh, hopefully, first of all, um, the NDP has followed up a couple of NDP MPs and filed a complaint as well. And when an MP files a complaint with the ethics commissioner, the ethics commissioner is required to investigate the complaint. Amazingly, when members of the public file a complaint with the ethics commissioner, the ethics commissioner can ignore it, even though... <laughs> that I didn't know. supposed to be working for us, and we're complaining yeah. about our politicians who we pay. 
But when an MP files a complaint, they have to uh, investigate it. So Ethics Commissioner Dion will have to investigate this. Hopefully he'll do the right thing and say, we can't even have the appearance of bias here. I was handpicked by the Trudeau cabinet through a secretive process, and so I am going to delegate it to someone else who is totally removed from all the federal parties. Mr. Trudeau does need to step aside and and allow Jody Wilson-Raybould, in fact, encourage her publicly to say what she knows and tell tell, tell Canadians what did or did not take place. Um, she, I, I don't think that she has solicitor-client privilege uh, in, in this particular matter. Solicitor-client privilege applies to giving advice to your client. And the government is the Attorney General's client. And, but this wasn't a situation of giving them advice. This was a situation of the government contacting her and trying to influence her decision of about course, someone yeah. else. That's right. It's not a case about yeah, yeah. the government. It's a case about SNC-Lavalin. So um, if they had asked her, is it legal for us to call you uh, and try to influence your decision on SNC-Lavalin, then yes, her answer to that question is advice. But if someone just calls her from the PMO and says, we really want you to intervene and stop this prosecution of SNC-Lavalin, it's a big company, lots of jobs, we want you to protect it, that's not advice. That's not a, something, they're not calling her as the government's lawyer for advice, and, it's, and therefore I don't believe, as many others have said, that solicitor-client privilege covers it. All right. And Duff, so I have to... just speak. I have to stop it there. Thank you so much for the time. Good speaking with you, and uh, hope you'll come back. Much more. Yes, I'm happy to talk as this thing develops, and we'll have much more ourselves. Okay. Duff Conacher from democracywatch.ca. And you can go as well to campaigns at democracywatch.ca. I'm making headline news across this country and globally have been uh, the sentences that were handed down to two multiple murderers in this country, serial killer Bruce MacArthur and Quebec City Moss Mask killer Alexandre Bissonnette were sentenced yesterday, both pleaded guilty, yet neither received consecutive sentencing. MacArthur will be eligible to request parole at age 91, and Bissonnette, who was sentenced to life, will nevertheless be eligible for parole in 40 years at age 69. And there's the story of Clinton Gale, who was convicted of first-degree murder in the 1994 killing of Toronto police officer Todd Bayliss and of attempted murder of Bayliss' partner, Constable Mike Leone. The uh, murder trial judge declared Gale killed Officer Bayliss in execution style, coming up for parole in June. Scott Newark is former Alberta Crown Attorney, as you know, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, as well as... uh, with the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime, now an adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Scott, thanks for the time, as always. And let's start with uh, with Bruce MacArthur and the sentence he received and the eligibility for parole consideration at age 91. Lots of people are saying, look, that's perfectly acceptable. Age 91, who knows if he'll make it. Other people are saying it's just abhorrent. There should have been consecutive sentencing. What happened? Well, um, I read the judgment, and um, it was very well written. And unlike the uh, the one uh, with uh, Monsieur Bissonnette in Quebec, or the uh, one we've spoken about at the uh, that is uh, uh, still looming for the uh, Humboldt uh, uh, Broncos uh, driver, uh, the, the guy that uh, killed those people, uh, this judge in uh, the MacArthur case put it together. I think in the space of about a week. Um, these um, essentially what happened, and I, ha- I originally thought that he was going to give him um, life and then use the new sections of the criminal code 
that would have given him the ability to make consecutive parole and eligibility periods of up to 50 years. Uh, the judgment is very, as I say, is very well written. He says, look, um, the two primary factors guiding him uh, were, number one, that this individual uh, pled guilty and that uh, as a result there was no need for the trial and the trauma that goes with it. The judge was also very, very careful to point out, however, that this in no way suggests that this guy is remorseful. In fact, he said exactly the opposite of him. But I think the conclusion that he drew, if you read the judgment, is that the new sections that allow for these consecutive parole and eligibility periods were not meant uh, to be used so as to have somebody, to, to necessarily mean that somebody would die in prison. Uh, and that's why he specifically references the second guiding factor, this individual's uh, age and the fact that he would only be eligible. And, and keep that in mind, for two folks. Eligible does not mean entitled to parole. And uh, the point that the judge was making in the sentence is that um, this individual uh, would be 91 years old at the point when he could apply for parole, and because of the lack of remorse that he has and his character, it's highly unlikely he will ever get parole. You can see the reaction, however, from people. There's a, a specific community that are involved in these uh, 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 murder victims. They're obviously, um, you know, I think they, they feel as though that, uh, in effect, uh, what could have been done was not done. But as I say, uh, the, the judgment itself is very well-reasoned, and it's uh, something that uh, I think is consistent with the new legislation that was passed, even if some people don't like the specific outcome. So if I ask you then, if serial murder doesn't warrant consecutive sentencing, what does? Every case is unique to its circumstances. You and I have discussed this for years. I think the genius of our justice system is its ability to deal with this offender, this offense. Okay, and it's not to say that the consecutive parole and ineligibility um, uh, provisions don't apply. We've had several uh, cases, um, uh, Dellen Millard, uh, uh, Jason uh, Bork in uh, New Brunswick, where in fact, and there's a guy in, uh, in Edmonton, where in fact people who were responsible for three murders were convicted and got that consecutive parole and eligibility so they won't be eligible for 75 years. In this case, the judge dealt with the specific circumstances as he saw them and imposed the sentence that he felt fit. Okay. Now, as far as Alexander Bissonnette is concerned, what's your thinking on, on the sentencing there? Um, <laughs> I, I noticed that at the beginning, uh, you, uh, uh, in describing this, you said that there was no consecutive uh, sentences imposed. In fact, in the Bissonnette case, there was uh, this, uh, now, Bissonnette was is in his uh, 20s, I believe. 29. Yeah, and um, this judge, by the way, adjourned for four months before rendering his, I think it was like 425-page judgment. Uh, and in it, he essentially says that these new provisions of the criminal code that allow for consecutive parole and eligibility um, uh, in cases of multiple murders are uh, unconstitutional and a violation of Section 12 of the Charter of Cruel and Unusual Punishment. And then he proceeds to go ahead and award consecutive uh, sentence or parole and eligibility. But instead of it being the uh, 25 years, which is what's specified in the criminal code, uh, the judge decided that he knows better, and he, so he uh, only made it uh, 15 years. 
it is still applying a consecutive parole and eligibility period. It's just clear that this judge thinks that his judgment is better than that of uh, our elected parliament and that he is free to simply uh, say that uh, they are wrong and it must be unconstitutional, but he is right. Appeal? I wouldn't be surprised. I actually wouldn't be surprised because I think in, in Bichonette's case, this is the kind of a case that these new provisions were designed for. And don't forget, this was a calculated, premeditated, um, ideologically motivated attack on people. I mean, it all happened in one instance, unlike MacArthur's, right, where you had multiple different murders committed over years, different kinds of circumstances. In that case, it's one incident where he goes in, and I think the total time was like less than five minutes. But there still were the consequences and the numbers of uh, victims involved. But I think what may also uh, influence the Crown in its consideration, as I say, is uh, what I would describe as the um, less than justifiable uh, legal uh, basis on which the uh, verdict was given. If you were the prosecutor in either of these cases, would you have handled the prosecution differently? I don't really know enough about how they did it uh, to be able to comment on that. It sounds to me... Um, that the uh, certainly in the uh, MacArthur case that everything you know was handled uh, appropriately. I don't think there's any suggestions of anything uh, that wasn't. Um, as I say in in the Bissonnette case, right from the outset, I think the prosecutor said they wanted 150 years of parole and eligibility because there were six murders there, which definitely opens up that argument, doesn't it, about the fact of what you're really doing is making this a death sentence by saying that the person is going to stay in prison until they they literally die. And so I think had... Which, which, wouldn't, which wouldn't trouble many of us uh, uh, yeah, a great yeah. deal. But, but if that is the case, then that is a different consideration. And at the time when the legislation was actually enacted, that was not something that was specifically contemplated by it. And so you're opening up the door, especially in you know our uh, judicial activist uh, uh, world in Canada, to a charter challenge. Yeah. So I think a more specific application, as I say, like which has been done in this country uh, to at least three occasions that I'm aware of, where, um, you know, you got a life parole, uh, life no parole 75 years, I think that would have made a lot more sense. So, you know, people are looking at Bissonnette and they see he's 29. He's not eligible for parole consideration for 40 years. So you put those numbers together and he's, that brings him to age 69. And as you've pointed out many times, just because you're eligible for parole doesn't mean you're going to get it. And in many cases, or in the, in the more high-profile, terrible cases, you're likely not going to get it. But it still is an uncomfortable feeling on the day that the man is sentenced yeah. to understand that it, 40 years later, when he still probably would have, you know, statistically have maybe some significant amount of life left, that he would be eligible to get out there and, and demand parole and cause more emotional distress for the families he's already uh, so, that so is, devastated. That is exactly a relevant point as well, too, is that w- what people sometimes don't uh, remember is that um, when you allow people to apply for parole, and think back to Clifford Olson, okay, Olson knew he was not going to get parole, but he enjoyed tormenting the victims. And our system is still stupid enough that uh, even when you're turned down for parole, we let you reapply every two years. Bernardo. That's something that needs to be changed. Yeah. Because that, that re-victimization is real. Yeah, and it's a, and it's a deeply concerning yes. issue. Scott... In June, I know this one touches you personally and very deeply. In June, um, the killer of Todd Bayless, Clinton Gale, who's 50 years of age, 
is going to be eligible for parole. What's the background here? Well, um, this is uh, actually uh, the case that I got involved in I, shortly after I arrived at the, uh, the police association. And uh, it was the murder of a, a young Toronto police officer, Todd Bayless, um, in circumstances that didn't seem to make any sense. And I started digging around. It's how I really got connected with the guys at the border officers union, because uh, they connected me with the immigration officers. Uh, because what is the case here, and I'm a little surprised that the media hasn't picked up on this. This was a guy, Clinton Gale, was uh, as a non-citizen. Let me repeat that. He is not a Canadian citizen, and he was in the country. He had a history of criminal convictions for drug trafficking and gun crimes and violent crimes, and he had been ordered deported, and he was uh, released from custody on, the la- on his latest sentence, and he was held in custody because supposedly the Jamaicans weren't cooperating to give us the travel documents to get him back to uh, Jamaica, although there's some dispute to that. Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, some administrative board said, oh, well, he's been in custody long enough. Let's go let him go on bail. And so they did, and he returned to his business of choice. And a couple of years later, he shoots and kills this young police officer. And, I mean, that is the, the uh, a fundamental part of this, is what the hell was this guy doing on our streets. He should have been removed from the country. And now he gets convicted of this. And, it, you know, it was in 1994 when he was convicted. I think his trial took, uh, I think it was until 2000, and, uh, or sorry, 1997 until he was actually convicted. Um, and he's convicted of murder and he's sentenced to life imprisonment, no parole for uh, 25 years, which, you know, is, as you say, is now coming up in, uh, in June of this year. Uh, but, I mean, just step back and think about this for a second, okay? When we make a decision that, of a non-citizen that we're going to deport them, that means we don't want them as part of our society anymore. Okay. When we make a decision that somebody is going to be released early from their jail sentence, and this is right in the language of the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, that the purpose of doing that is to help reintegrate the person into our society. Well, those are completely contradictory concepts. Why on earth would we be releasing somebody early from a sentence when we don't want them in our society in the first place? Okay, that should not happen. And secondly, here we are 25 years later. Uh, Do we have the travel documents yet? Are we allowed to remove him? Um, There's going to be some legal issues involved in this, Roy, because I've taken a look at the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, and there is a section in there, Section 50, uh, that potentially could be used to say, uh, well, no, he's still serving a sentence, so you can't remove him. And we haven't, to my knowledge, we haven't begun proceedings. It's also uh, under a statute called the International Transfer of Offenders Act, where we could literally transfer him back to Jamaica uh, to serve his sentence, although there's a problem with it that I pointed out over the years. Uh, uh, pursuant to Section 8 of that act, three parties have to consent, Canada as the host country, Jamaica as the returning country, and the bad guy. Uh, Who knows whether or not uh, that is something that has even been attempted, but Mm -hmm. frankly, if this guy is up for, quotation marks, parole, what should happen is it's parole for the purpose of deportation. You get the uh, parole order, we take you from the room and put you on a bus, take you to the airport, put you on a plane, and take you back to Jamaica. Okay, listen, uh, I also want to point out that... uh, um Officer Bayless' brother yes. has a petition, started a petition online to keep Clinton Gale behind bars. And I had the information in front of me, and wouldn't you know, I 
I don't know what I've done with it. I've so much paper here. But if you if you just go on online and you um, and you uh, just get a search engine and look for petition and then put Todd Bayliss, T-O-D-D-B-A-Y-L-I-S, you'll find it. Yeah, and in fairness, um, his view, and I understand this as well, too, his view is uh, that not that he should be deported, but rather he should be kept behind. Bars. Right, exactly. Now, what's happening with, uh, we have a minute and a half, what's happening with Omar Cotter? Well, as we predicted, uh, frankly, over the years, when Cotter decided to appeal his conviction, and uh, in the United States, even though he said that he was guilty, and I read the affidavit that he signed that said that he knew he was guilty and nobody had forced him into anything, and a couple of years after his return here, he decided, oh, I'm going to file an appeal, and even though he was at the point where he could have applied for parole, instead of doing that, he applied for bail. And so what happens is, is literally the clock stops running on his sentence because, of course, he's no longer serving it. The conditions that he was released on on, on bail will be almost identical to what he would have been released on on parole. And so uh, I think the reason it was done was because it was like a better communication strategy to portray him as this wrongfully convicted and imprisoned individual that helped him get his uh, settlement of $10.5 million. Okay, but... When he went back to court and tried to change his uh, bail the last time and it got turned down, I remember on your show saying, hey, he's going to have to do something because his sentence is still going. He's still got a couple right. of years left to serve. Well, it turns out, Roy, his sentence would have ended in October of 2018. So guess what? His lawyer is now going, oh, we're going to have to go to, back to court and there's a provision under yep. the Youth Criminal Justice Act or maybe we could go to a superior court and get a rid of habeas corpus to say that his sentence okay. should be over. i got to stop you. I personally agree that he should get that, but if I was the judge, it yep. would also be, oh, yes, and there's one other provision. These were, these situations you yep. I gotta go, Scott. was created by you, so as a result, the <laughs> taxpayer shouldn't pay for it, so I'm ordering that you pay costs I gotta go, Scott. out of $10.5 million. Thank you for the time, as always, Scott. i got to go. Um, here's the story that, uh, well, we're... It's it's very disturbing, and it, it has to do with the issue of blackface. More incidents of wearing blackface are becoming public. Today, it's Canadian comedian Mark Rousewell, who on Twitter admits to wearing blackface while in high school, while he and three friends were impersonating the band The Temptations. Rousewell tweets his drama teacher suggested there was nothing wrong with students wearing blackface. This, of course, follows uh, the revelation that the governor of Virginia, Ralph North, Northam, Wore a blackface for a law school yearbook. My good friend Ron Miller joins us. Ron is actually a, a resident of the state of Virginia. He's in Lynchburg. He's uh, African American and dean of the Helms School of Government at Liberty University. He's the author of Sellouts, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. Ron, I, uh, I didn't think in all the conversations we've had over the years that we would be revisiting what appears to be a, a series, or it is a series of news stories about wearing blackface. Uh, it's just so it's just so unavoidable to understand that this is a, this is a, a racist act. But thank you for joining us. And what's the impact on you when you found out your state governor had engaged in blackface in his university yearbook? Well, Roy, um, first of all, thank you for having me. It's been an interesting time here in the state of Virginia between the blackface episodes and then the 
allegations against the lieutenant governor around sexual assault, all of the leadership is, is under siege right now. And as time passes and more revelations are coming out, not just from public figures uh, in, in the political realm, but from entertainers and others, uh, it's started quite a conversation. And it really strikes me that perspective is, is everything. And anyone who knows anything about the history of blackface would understand why people are reacting to it the way they did. I know when I first thought about it, it was not just the act itself, but the timing of it. I would think that by 1984 to 86, when this yearbook came out, that it was fairly well understood that blackface had had, had been a means to denigrate black people and, and use stereotypical uh, portrayals of them. Uh, and I, so I was surprised by the fact that in 1986 that someone would still be doing it. But I also know Virginia is a very unusual state in terms of its history, uh, its on race relations. Obviously, this is the 400th anniversary of the first slaves arriving in the settlement of Jamestown, Virginia. And former Governor Bob McDonnell has created an organization that was supposed to use this year as a year of reconciliation. And Governor Northam, in fact, was very much in favor of it and spoke prominently about this initiative. And, in fact, I heard today he's refusing to resign and is going to use this experience as a teaching moment and to help deal with the question of reconciliation. So um, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to work. Uh, I, I just think it's a very complicated situation all the way around. And I think it's exacerbated by the political polarization in our country where a lot of conservatives are saying if Northam were a conservative as opposed to being a, a, a Democrat, um, that the reaction would be much more intense and the uh, expectations much greater, even though he had lost a lot of support from Virginia Democrats. And now with the other allegations against uh, the attorney general and against the lieutenant governor, I don't know where anybody stands in terms of their demands of these people and what the expectation is of what they should do. So many questions. Some things are obvious, but so many questions, and the answers are absolutely necessary. Ron, thank you for joining us. I, you're, you're, I know you're extremely busy you're, with your move to a new residence. Good luck with that, and I hope you got a bit of a rest, too, uh, just, uh, just chatting with us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, as always, Roy, and uh, stay tuned. Uh, the news is breaking on a lot of things here yeah. in Virginia every day, so who knows what will come tomorrow. All right. We'll talk to you real soon. Thank you, Ron. All right. Thank you. Take care, Roy. Ron Miller, Reflections.net uh, is his website. Really, really good guy. He's been uh, been on our program for, my goodness, uh, 15 or so years. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.